Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and our minds be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Isaac was an eligible bachelor. It had been some years since we last met him as a child. He is now in his 40s, wealthy with livestock, land, slaves, and money. Indeed, he's an eligible bachelor that probably could be on one of Pastor Molly's favorite TV shows, The Bachelor. <laughs> but this was 1500 BCE, so it didn't exist. And as an eligible bachelor, his mom has also just passed away, and so his dad, Abraham, decides to be proactive and seek a partner for him. Maybe you too have experienced other people trying to manage your life when grief strikes. And so Abraham's servant, who goes unnamed, is set to this task. And he's sent to Nahor, to Abraham's brother, to seek out a suitable spouse. And he arrives to the town, and Rebekah appears at the well. She's Nahor's granddaughter, a generation younger than Isaac. And she treats Abraham's servant kindly, treats the animals, the camels, kindly. And so the servant gives her gold bands and asks to go to her house, and she invites him. And there he shares his mission by way of telling the entire story again, hence our truncated reading today. And he seeks Rebekah's hand for Isaac. And her brother Laban, current considerately, asks if she is willing to do so. And she says that she is. And so she heads off with the servant and an entourage of her own toward Isaac. And as they get close to the Negev, she sees a man from across the field, and the servant tells her that this is Isaac, and she hides her face. Modesty, she blushing. We don't know if she thinks, oh, he's handsome. All we know is the next thing that happens is they're getting married. She went into his mother's tent with him. She became his wife, and he loved her. Now, this is one of the greatest narratives in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's cohesive. It's long. It's repetitive, too. But it's also considered a romantic love story, even though it's sparse on the actual romance. It's an arranged marriage gone right. Yet let's think about this for just a moment. Familial relations aside, Rebecca is entering into the family system that we've already heard about the last few weeks, a family that is engaged in violence towards slaves, towards children, toward one another. She's entering into a family that has lied. She's betrothed to a man whose father attempted to kill him when he was a kid, whose brother was kicked out of the house, and whose beloved mother just died. Yet, God's promise, that covenant, still lingers in the background, a promise for the future, for generations to come, generation upon generation, a promise of hope. Now, the story of Isaac and Rebekah doesn't get simpler in the coming chapters. It gets messier, and we'll see that in the weeks to come. Yet in this story, the very start of Rebekah and Isaac's relationship, Rebekah is given a choice. She can say yes or no. 
And although God is not directly present in this story, God's will is discerned in prayer and by observation, and God's hesed, that steadfast love, that loyalty is demonstrated through human action. Indeed, Rebecca's yes reminds us that a yes is only really a yes if no is also an option. And she chooses to enter the messiness of this marriage. And her yes reminds us, too, that God's yes is also a choice. A yes to be in relationship with our messiness. Our messinesses. Relationships are messy. It's interesting that research has shown that the success of a marriage doesn't rely on how long a couple dates. Doesn't matter how in love they are, whether they cohabitate before marriage or if the marriage is one out of love or it's been arranged for them by a matchmaker or their families. It matters instead how a couple, whether straight or gay, navigates conflict. It matters how they stay calm and especially how they move toward one another rather than away when things get hard. For over 30 years, John Gottman and his wife Julie and their team at the University of Washington have studied relationships. They followed nearly a thousand couples through the birth of children, illnesses, and loss, and divorce. Their research examines relationships through a counseling lens, but also through physiology, looking at how their bodies respond hormonally, heart rate, etc., to the emotions that are present in their relationship. And one of the key observations from Dr. Gottman's work is his understanding of emotional communication. He calls the fundamental unit of emotional communication a bid. It's something that we all do every day without even thinking about it. A bid can be small or big, verbal or nonverbal. They're the requests we make to connect. They can take the form of an expression, question, or physical outreach. They can be funny, serious, or even sexual in nature. For example, your partner might say, Hey, whatever happened with that situation at work with your manager? Or, do you want to talk about our plans this weekend? Or even simply, can you pass the water? They could also give you a loving squeeze, pat you affectionately on the head or shoulder, or tease you with a wink. And vids are often purposely subtle because people are afraid to be vulnerable and put themselves out there. It's scary to say, hey, I want to connect, pay attention to me. So instead, we ask a question, or tell a story, or offer our hand for connection. We hope we'll receive connection in return, but if not, it's a lot less scary than pleading, connect with me, please. And Gottman says that there are three ways that we can respond to these bids. The first way, the best way, is turning toward them, acknowledging the bid. The second is turning away, ignoring or missing it, not paying attention. The third is turning against it, rejecting it in an argumentative or belligerent way. And it's that response, these responses to the bids for connection, this is where, according to Gottman, relationships succeed or they start to fall apart. That it matters how we reach out and how we respond and pay attention to one another in our common interactions. And if we turn toward one another, if we acknowledge with a touch or a question or positive expression, we draw closer. 
In their research, successful, happily married couples respond to bids by turning toward them 86% of the time. In contrast, the couples that struggle and often end in divorce only do so about 30% of the time. It matters how we respond. The Bachelor TV show, by the way, which I referenced at the start of my sermon, with a total of 26 contestants up through 2022, has only one, of, one contestant who has successfully stayed with the final person that they picked and proposed to. It's a success rate of 4%. Entertaining TV doesn't necessarily build good relationships. But Rebecca and Isaac are thankfully off to a better start. Why? One simple line says quite a bit. She became his wife and he loved her. Not he loved her and she became his wife, which could also be true. But instead, the verse tells us that love is shown out of promise, that love is a choice. It's out of turning toward each other. It is love that is how we live out the promises that we make to each other. Now, responding to emotional bids isn't just for couples. As I mentioned to the kids earlier, it's how we build relationships in our lives with our children, with our parents, with our friends, with our colleagues. It's how we establish trust. It's how we deepen a relationship. Now, the everyday nature of bid seems mundane. It's really not much more interesting than this how we met story that we get in Genesis. Yet as St. Teresa of Avila once noted, Christ dwells among the pots and the pans. In other words, if we don't bump into Jesus in the run of a typical day, we might not run into him much at all. In other words, our day-to-day choices, the directions we turn, matter. Why? Because if we practice turning toward one another when decisions are difficult, when problems arise, when it isn't easy to talk, we still know how to do so. We have practice at making a positive choice with our partner, with our children, whether they're adults or youngsters, or with friends or colleagues. We have a practice turning to a love that brings us closer to God, too. And so here are a few ways to practice this week. I invite you to take a moment over the course of the week and be intentional in a conversation, whether with a partner or spouse, with a family member, or with just a friend. Consider sharing something you've been grateful for recently. Maybe something that person did or said, something that impacted you. Or consider discussing your hopes and dreams or maybe a hobby or a skill you'd like to learn. This could be a bigger, deeper conversation like what legacy you want to leave or it could be simpler like where you want to go on vacation. Or it could be chatting and choosing to join a choir with a friend or read a book together. Or if neither of those work for you, talk about how you first met. With a spouse, maybe it's that first date or maybe it's when you first saw each other. With a friend, maybe it's an activity or an event, a way that you first found a relationship with each other. Or maybe with family, it's recalling a family gathering like that Family reunion way, way back where there were gallons of extra pasta? I don't know why. 
but look back and remember the positive. It's about choices. And these choices reminded me of a little story I stumbled upon a while back, and here's what it said. The 92-year-old petite, well-poised, and proud mother-in-law of my best friend who is fully dressed each morning by 8 o'clock with her hair fashionably coiffed and makeup perfectly applied, even though she's legally blind, moved to a nursing home today. Her husband of 70 years recently passed away, making the move necessary. Maureen Jones is the most lovely, gracious, dignified woman that I have ever had the pleasure of meeting. And while I've never aspired to attain her depth of wisdom, I do pray that I will learn from her vast experience. After many hours of waiting patiently in the lobby of the nursing home, she smiled sweetly when told her room was ready. As she maneuvered her walker to the elevator, I provided a visual description of her tiny room, including the eyelet sheets that had been hung on her window. I love it, she stated with the enthusiasm of an eight-year-old having just been presented with a new puppy. Mrs. Jones, you haven't even seen the room. Just wait. That doesn't have anything to do with it, she replied. Happiness is something you decide on ahead of time. Whether I like my room or not doesn't depend on how the furniture is arranged. It's how I arranged my mind. I already decided to love it. It's a decision I make every morning when I wake up. I have a choice. I can spend the day in bed recounting the difficulty I have with the parts of my body that no longer work or get out of bed and be thankful for the ones that do. Each day is a gift. And as long as my eyes open, I'll focus on the new day and all the happy memories I've stored away just for this time in my life. In our lives, we may not have a lot of control over the circumstances themselves, but we do have the power to choose how we respond to them. Will it be with grace and mercy and kindness? Will we turn toward each other, our partner, our child, our friend? Or will we turn away? Will our choices be centered on the loving kindness and sure presence of God or based in fear and resentment and anxiety? Will we use whatever influence we have to speak up for and act on behalf of the hungry, the thirsty, the vulnerable, the stranger, the sick, the imprisoned, or will we choose to be quiet? The way we respond to circumstances is within our control. Our world may be messy. Our relationships may be messy, but Rebecca has reminded us that we always have a choice. We can turn toward one another. We can turn toward the God who turns and has already turned toward us. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>